Uh, this is uh, the Trinity lesson number three, and so far we have had an introduction, and then we got into God the Father last week, and so now we're looking at God the Son. Of course, He is the number two member of the Godhead when quoted, but there are other scriptures that put the Lord Jesus before the Father and the Holy Spirit, and then others that put the Holy Spirit before the Father and the Son. And so we have been studying this mystery because it is a divine mystery, and in all of my studies on it and research and writing, some people get so hardlined on Trinitarianism that if you just conjugate a verb wrong, they're going to label you a heretic. If you just breathe wrong when you're talking about the Trinity, they're going to want to maybe label you a heretic, excommunicate you, maybe burn you at the stake. So I'm trying to handle this subject with as much tact and caution as possible because I didn't realize it was that sensitive. I was raised a good old Trinitarian Baptist. It was uh, holy, 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 God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And we just love God. And, but some folks take this very serious. And I'm not saying we shouldn't take the Trinity so serious. But when you're, really, when you're ready to kill people because they use a the wrong example or they don't understand your father as much as you think you understand your father or the son or what have you, it's a little extreme. It's called a mystery because we don't fully understand all of it. And the scriptures are giving us windows of understanding, but at best, we still only know in part. And so I might even come back five years from now and reevaluate this curriculum and tweak a paragraph or tweak a section and say, I, I, I was on a good roll there. I wasn't, I was in the wrong direction there. But I'm, my aim is to show you so much of what the scripture has to say and so much of what other commentators and theologians have studied out so you can have a better understanding. As I've said every lesson now, we know four things about the Trinity, not much at all. Maybe we've upgraded to a little bit more. So maybe we have four things plus a little bit more. We're up to seven. Not much at all, but a little bit more. <laughs> and in the end, we just love Jesus. We call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, and we are born again. But the wonderful thing about God is you don't have to have all understanding to be saved. And as much as we love God, we're still not going to know all there is to know. He's infinite. We're going to spend eternity getting to know his infinitesimalness, and we'll still be finite even as we pass into eternity. So to think we could understand it all by now is a bit foolish. And we'll cover some more of these thoughts uh, in our fifth lesson when we get into the heresies, common anti-Trinitarian heresies. So let's look at this. To review, the Trinity has been called the greatest of all divine mysteries and the center gem of all divine revelation. I like that. The center gem of, of divine revelation. Beginning in Genesis 1-1, God has revealed himself to be a unity in plurality. That means one among many or one. I don't want to say among. Somebody would nail me for that. One, but three. Or God, three in one. Three persons, yet one in substance, co-eternal and co-equal. And these are terms we'll see in the Athanasian Creed, which we will cover in our fifth and final lesson. The complexity of this spiritual fact is apparent, yet God further revealed this mystery through the incarnation that is Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. So one of the terms you'll see over and over again is that uh, one, three persons, one substance, co-eternal, co-equal, unity, and plurality. And these are really just terms Christians are trying to put on this concept that there are three in the Scriptures that are God, that three that are equal to God, three that are worshipped as God, yet there's but one God. 
That's what makes it a mystery. How can this be? We're just flesh and blood scratching around on this planet trying to get a meal and raise our kids. How can we understand the infinite God? We might say as best as possible. The incarnation has been dubbed eternity stepping into time. So how do you explain that? We are finite. God is eternal. When Jesus was born of a virgin, it was eternity stepping into time. How does that happen and not mess everything else up? How does God become born of a virgin? How does God inhabit the seed of a woman and man and grow and come out through, through the uterus, through birth, and have to be circumcised and shed blood at circumcision? That was the first shedding of blood. And then grow and eat and potty and learn obedience. It's a mystery. We, we pretend like it isn't. But seriously, can you grasp that and yet maintain his deity at the same time and still be one with the Father and not have the Holy Spirit to the River Jordan? <laughs> and yet he is one with the Spirit because he is the Spirit because it's the Spirit of Christ. We'll just go back to what do we know about the Trinity? Not much at all. <laughs> the manifestation and revelation of Jesus Christ helps us to further understand our God and the Trinitarian nature by allowing us to handle the word of life. When Jesus Christ stepped on the scene, when he was born of a virgin and began to manifest his earthly ministry, he began to manifest the express will of God. And that all of a sudden gave us an explosion of understanding, an explosion of scripture that helps paint the picture of the Trinity. So that's what we're going to look at in this lesson. This lesson is going to be all about glorifying God the Son. Jesus in the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus was active in the Old Testament. And let me, let me pause here. There are folks that think God manifested as the Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the Gospels, and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And that's a commonly held, we would say, misconception. We would not label them heretics. We would label them just misunderstood or misunderstanding. God was not manifesting in the Old Testament, like some hold him to, because nobody has seen the Father. So how can he be the one manifesting in the Old Testament? The Lord Jesus was active in the Old Testament, appearing to his servants in theophanies, or divine appearances. Since no man has seen the Father, we must understand these divine appearances of God to be the Lord Jesus before the incarnation. And everybody agrees on that. Every theologian agrees once they really start to bog down that these divine theophanies or these supernatural manifestations of, of the Lord, he wasn't called Jesus then. He was known as the Lord. When he's showing up and he's interacting with Moses or Abraham or Gideon, or he's interacting with Jacob and wrestling with Jacob or with Hagar, that this is the Lord Jesus. It can't be the Father because nobody has seen him. Only the Son. can't be the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is a spirit. So in bodily form, we all agree this has to be the Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, and often even the angel of the Lord, as he's called the angel Lord, that is agreed upon to be the Lord Jesus the word angel just means messenger, especially or only, we should say only when the angel of the Lord permitted worship. When the angel of the Lord showed up and said, take your shoes off, this is holy ground, and they would and they would worship and the angel permitted it, that's the Lord Jesus. Because angels don't permit worship. 
Even in the Revelation, the angel told John, get up, for I'm like you. We're just servants. Don't worship me. Worship God. But every time the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament permitted worship, we know that was the Lord Jesus. Uh, major Old Testament theophanies include, and you'll have to forgive me, I, I just added that this morning. It was in some notes I had, but I left them and I didn't have the addresses. We'll add those later for pod school. Major theophanies include Abraham upon entering the promised land, Hagar as she ran from Sarah, here as the angel of the Lord, but then she said, this is the Lord that sees me. Abraham at 99 years old, Jacob as he wrestled with the angel, Moses at the burning bush, Joshua upon entering into Canaan. Here the Lord is called the captain of the host. And we know he'll come back in charge of angels and in charge of his saints to wreak uh, havoc and judgment upon the earth. And Gideon as he threshed wheat. Those are just a few examples. Um, some folks really start to try to add more to the list of theophanies. I personally, when I talk about a theophany, my understanding of a theophany is bodily form. Others, other commentators and, and theologians try to say uh, anytime the Lord appeared, they want to call that a theophany, but when there's not a clear distinction on how he appeared, we maybe not want to say that's the Lord in bodily form. But when a man walks up or there appeared unto them a man or there stood a man like Daniel, uh, when Daniel saw a man on the other side of the river, when it's a bodily form, we, I consider that to be a theophany and they're being worshiped, it's Jesus. So I want you to see the Lord Jesus, though he had not revealed himself in the name of Jesus, he was called the Lord, and he was always at work throughout the Old Testament, revealing himself to his servants at necessary times. And it always seems to be in times of either uh, extreme obedience or uh, we're about to have a deliverance. You know, he showed himself up to Abraham. Abraham had obeyed. When he showed up to Hagar, Hagar is about to be delivered. When he shows up to Gideon, Gideon's about to deliver. So we see it's part of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He's showing up to reward or he's showing up to deliver because that's what Jesus does. He saves. Amen. Next section here. Jesus claimed to be God. So in talking about the Trinity, we got to look at this fact that there are three held in the Bible that are held to be God, three that are worshiped as God, yet there's but one God. These biblical facts are what cause us to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity. And so there are folks that deny the deity of Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witness do, the Mormons do, uh, other cults. I'm trying to think of some of them. These are the common ones today. We, of course, hold Jesus Christ to be God Almighty. Amen. Quite amazing, Jesus claimed to be God while simultaneously referring to his Father as God. Now, one of the great apologetic arguments is concerning the Lord Jesus Jesus was either who he said he was or he was a psychotic nut job. Because <laughs> he went around saying, I and my father are one and I am God. And so either he is who he said he was or you need to put him in a, uh, in a loony bin somewhere in a uh, straitjacket. Because a lot of folks want to discount the deity of Jesus Christ and say, well, I like Jesus. I like that guy. He said some good things. In fact, I even saw a movie recently and uh, somebody, was, you know, supposed to be some little tender moment between the little girl or little boy and her dad. And they said, what about Jesus? And the dad said, yeah, do all that guy said to do. And Hollywood's just trying to kind of play neutral ground on Jesus. But do all that that guy said to do? You mean like heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely receive, freely give? 
Do you have you even read what Jesus said to do? <laughs> Take up your cross, follow me. None comes to the Father but by me. Yeah, whatever that guy's, do that. That's pretty flippant, pretty carnal, pretty sacrilegious, pretty, um, pretty hell worthy. Amen. Jesus Christ claimed to be God while simultaneously saying, my father is God. So we'll look at Matthew 28, 18, couple verses here. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Only God has all power. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That's a powerful verse. Before Abraham, 14, 1800 years ago was, in the time of Christ, 14, 1800 years ago, before Abraham was, 1800 years before Christ, before Abraham was, I am. I and my father are one. So again, he's either who he said he was or he's crazy. In fact, we have people walking around Cookville who are this level crazy because they're not Jesus and they're not God. And it's a very common psychotic delusion to think you are God or I'm the son of God or John the Baptist or the prophet Elijah or, or they'll go the other extreme and say, I'm the Antichrist. And Jesus said, me and my father, we're one. He that has seen, the, has seen me has seen the father. Now remember, scripture says over and over again, nobody has seen the father. But Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And these are the Lord Jesus teaching Trinity in a passive form. Because the word Trinity is not used anywhere in the Bible. But we see through scriptures like these, this is the best explanation we can have for the nature and the deity of God Almighty. Therefore, the Jews, here's, here's what John observed, John the Revelator. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill Jesus because he'd said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, keep in mind, Jesus called, referred to his father over 120 times in, God, in John's gospel alone. So every time he referred to his father, he was saying, I am God. Because there's, uh, there's an argument that says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. According to John, with Jewish understanding, if he said God was his father, he made himself equal to God. And that's why they sought to kill him, or one of the reasons they sought to kill him. And then I like this. This is what theologians call uh, the divine double imperative. Jesus Christ said in John 14, 1, you believe in God, believe also in me. <laughs> the divine double imperative. A double imperative means it's a twice, a twofold command. Basically, you must believe in God. And because you must believe in God, you must believe in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. So here's some really cool passages from the scriptures which equate Jesus Christ to Je the Je Jehovah, the, the uh, self-existent one of the Old Testament. So it's a little bit of a complicated argument, but here, here's how it goes. Jehovah is the most commonly used name of God in the Old Testament. We've, we covered that last lesson. It is translated as Lord, capital L-O-R-D, capital O, capital R, capital D, in the King James translation. It is translated as the existing one or the self-existent one. It is first seen in Genesis 2-4. It's the first time it's used. A Adam calls him that. And it is used 600 excuse me, 6,519 times. So that's a most common term, Jehovah. And there's even more etymology to it. It's actually kind of a corrupted, as it handed down, the Jews did not want to write the name of God. They omitted vowels. 
and then Adonai got inserted in there. So then the vowels are rediscovered. So you, we don't, Yahweh, Yahweh, which is like Y-H-W-H, because they omitted all the vowels. They were trying to honor the name of God. So when it appears that many times, if you study this out in commentaries or websites where the Jews are writing, they'll just write Yahweh, but it's only Y-H-W-H. They left the vowels out sometime in antiquity, and then they came back and added an Adonai, and it kind of filled out and made a new word, which we still revere, called Jehovah. But Jehovah is, best as we can understand, a corrupt form of what the real name of God is. And so that's just kind of how this all plays out. But Jehovah is how it's understood now. The self-existent one, what the name means is, is the same thing. It's just like we lost a word and recreated it, but it's still representing the same thing. 6,519 uh, 6, times, it's often coupled together with Elohim and is rendered, therefore, the Lord God. And so uh, the term literally translates as the self-existent mighty ones, because if you'll remember, Elohim is plural. So the Lord God rendered from the, the Hebrew is the self-existent mighty ones the self-existent mighty ones, which undermines any kind of anti-Trinitarian heresy that would say Jesus was created by the Father or the Holy Spirit was created by the Father because they are self-existent, co-eternal, co-equal. The following New Testament verses apply Old Testament passages containing Jehovah to Jesus of Nazareth. So I went through all that to say this. The following verses we're going to look at are Old Testament scriptures quoted in the New Testament. When they're quoted in the New Testament, they're applied to Jesus. But the Old Testament scriptures is talking about Jehovah. So by the very fact that the Old Testament verse refers to Jehovah, and we bring it to the New Testament, and the Holy Ghost inspires the authors to apply it to Jesus, we see this transitive property, if you will, that the nature of Jehovah. Jehovah is Jesus Christ. You follow that? All right. This is more educational this morning. This is more uh, Bible school. This is not so much exhortive. You have to keep your attentive brain turned on. This is not the kind of lesson you teach in a 10,000-member megachurch. Because 9,000 of them would be on Facebook or checking the scores. <laughs> And they might happen to also be, some of those would hear the Lord say, I never knew you. Amen. All right. Just want to encourage you. Follow with me here. We're trying to educate you. Uh, Matthew 3 quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. Prepare ye the way, uh, the way of Jehovah and make his path straight. That's applied to John the Baptist preparing the way of Jesus Christ, but it was prophesied about Jehovah. John 12 quotes Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6, Lord, who has believed our report, or Jehovah, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of Jehovah been revealed? So John is talking about Jesus Christ doing miracles, and nobody believed him. And so John quotes Isaiah saying, Lord, why won't anybody believe our report? And, and your arm has been revealed to them, Jesus, Jehovah, but nobody seems to follow or believe. Ephesians 4 quotes Psalm 68, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that Jehovah Elohim might dwell among them. Quoting the fivefold ministry gifts, 
but it's Jehovah Elohim. He gives the gifts that he might dwell among us. Now, it's interesting because the, the, uh, the interpretation is the Lord Jesus gave gifts unto men, and the fivefold ministry gifts are one way Jehovah Elohim can dwell among his people through those gifts. Not that the men are God, don't under, misunderstand me, but those are gifts that are anointed of God, and it's a way for God to shepherd his congregations or, or prophesy to them or to teach them or evangelize them, etc. And then the last one, 1 Peter 3 quotes Isaiah 8, but sanctify Jehovah Elohim in your hearts. And it's in reference to Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, there's so much to be said about the Lord Jesus, but I'm trying to hit the points that focus on the Trinitarian nature and help us to understand uh, what's going on. All right, next section. The New Testament recognizes Jesus Christ as God. And so we should expect that over and over and over again. Uh, both the Gospels and the Epistles ascribed deity to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. You don't get any more clear than that. <laughs> the J-dubs, Jehovah's Witnesses, they have to have their own translation of the Bible to butcher that because uh, their translation says, and the Word was a God. I don't know how you mess up the definitive article there in the, in the Hebrew, or excuse me, the Greek. That's been argued volumes and volumes. And so what do you do? You just, you just write your own different translation because that's what cults have to do. John 20, 28, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Thomas, one of the apostles of the Lamb, called Jesus Christ, my God. Amen. That's, that'd be a good statement for all of us. Every time we come to the Lord's house, get on our knees and say, Jesus, my Lord and my God. Not just my master, my God Almighty. Philippians 2.6, Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So there's Paul saying, Jesus was in the form of God, the morphous of God, and he didn't find it robbery to be equal with God because he was God. Colossians 2.9, for in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. <laughs> in Jesus is all the fullness of the Godhead. That's a Trinitarian verse right there because in Jesus is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And again, it's a mystery. It's an enigma. How, how can all three exist in one but still be three persons and yet still inhabit all the eternity, past, present, future, and the cosmos the furthest star that's still spinning and, and yet dwell in the smallest cell at the bottom of the Marianas Trench in the middle of a little fish and yet still care about what you're going through tomorrow and be speaking you to today by the Spirit about what's going to happen to you next week. I can understand perhaps why the atheist would say it's just easier not to believe because if he does exist, I'm in so much trouble. <laughs> You're already in so much trouble. 2 Timothy 4.18, And the Lord shall preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. Notice the heavenly kingdom is called the Lord Jesus. belongs to him. And yet it's the kingdom of God. Amen. Titus 2.13, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here he's called our God and Savior. 
our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's referred to as the God of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But here, Jesus Christ is called God and Savior. The appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. You're only unchanging for eternity if you are God Almighty. And then I like this one, quoting the Old Testament, Isaiah 44, 6. I am the first and I am the last. And beside me, there is no God. That sounds like the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. I am the Alpha and the, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, I tell you, you start just reading scriptures about Jesus. You're like, I just want to go run through a wall and cast out a demon and win a city for Christ. Amen. I have no idea why a seeker church would be so embarrassed of Jesus uh, you'd be ashamed of that name because it offends people. If it offends people, they're not worthy of the gospel. Dust your feet off and move on. Jesus chased nobody. Amen. They'd call out to him and he'd stop. Say, what do you want? And if they answered in the positive, he'd give it to them and then he'd move on. Expecting them to follow after and become a disciple. He chased after nobody. But haven't we in our market-driven society learned to or been taught to chase people who don't want to be caught? You don't chase people who don't want to be caught. You'll never catch them. You'll just waste time and energy. Amen. We like to talk about the Lord being our lighthouse or he's a, a city set on a hill. But if you've ever been to like Michigan, there's a lot of lighthouses up and down or the northeast lighthouses. Lighthouses don't move. They don't run up and down the coast trying to get the attention of a ship so the ship doesn't hurt itself. <laughs> the lighthouse has a foundation, always on rock. It goes up 100, 200 feet, and it just does its thing. And the ships who are smart are desperately looking for that light so they can navigate by it. But the church has become a bunch of wandering, limp-wristed lighthouses chasing people who don't care if they dash their life upon rocks. Jesus Christ is just the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the rock, and we stay anchored upon him, and people are drawn to us. Now, we go out and we go into the highways and hedges, sure, but we just give the answer, and if they're hungry, they'll come after us. Remember, the Lord Jesus told Ananias, I'm sending someone to you, Saul of Tarsus. A blind man could find the light in Ananias' home. And the Lord told, I've commanded someone to take care of you. Go find them. <laughs> it was up for the blind and the lost to find themselves. So, yeah, we don't chase nothing but Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus possesses the attributes of God. The New Testament is, uh, ascribes the attributes of God to Jesus, making him God. So we don't have time to look at any of these scriptures, but... I think we will read these, these bullet points. He is life. That's the attribute of God. Uh, John 1, 4 says, uh, He is life, and uh, He is the life that lighteth every man that comes into the world. He is self-existent. He is immutable. That means He's unchanging. Jesus is truth. I like that. Jesus is love. Jesus is holiness. These are all the attributes of the eternal God. He is eternal. He is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere all at once. He is omniscient. That means he has all knowledge. He is omnipotent. 
which means he has all power. He is the creator. He is worshiped. He is the image of the invisible God. Now that is an enigma and a contradiction. Wait a minute. If he's the invisible God, how is he the image of the invisible God? Doesn't he cease to be invisible? <laughs> That's like honest politician. <laughs> he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ said, if any man has seen me, he's seen the Father. He is the fullness of the Godhead. You just, you don't get any more cut and dry than that. So those verses are definitely worth looking up and studying for your own edification. This next section I want to tiptoe into because somebody would maybe want to nail me for heresy. But I think once we see this, I, there's no other interpretation. I, I come at this scientifically. In fact, it was a Christian, I think it was Pasteur, who developed the scientific method because this is like 15th, 16th century. He both did science and studied the Bible using the same technique. It became the scientific principle, and it also it was a way to study the Bible. So when you do science, you look at all the evidence to develop your hypotheses. And when you build doctrine, you look at all the scriptural evidence before you build your doctrine. So I'm going to tiptoe through this. Somebody told me yesterday, Pastor, I've never seen you so cautious and tiptoeing than you were last Sunday teaching on God the Father. And I think, well... You don't get labeled a heretic any faster than you start saying something half a breath wrong about the Trinity. Somebody's going to light you up on Facebook or write a blog about you. I don't think there can be any other conclusion come to except for what we're about to see. And others have hit upon it, so I'm not the first here. But it, it lends itself to a potential anti-Trinitarian heresy because folks get so hard set one way, they can't let other evidences in the Scripture balance them out. So the role of Jesus, perhaps, perhaps a potentially controversial notion concerning the Trinity is the distribution of powers and responsibilities in God's dealing with mankind. And by that I mean Father, Son, and Spirit have different roles in man's dealings, which bugs some people because they're supposed to be the same, co-eternal, co-equal. And yet, if you stop to think about the scriptures, you do realize each of the members of the Godhead have a different role they have chosen within themselves in their interactions with mankind. And I don't understand why that's controversial, except for maybe someone just had a notion and then found scripture to back up their notion rather than studying the scripture to develop a notion. It is the son that was born of a virgin. Not the Father, not the Holy Spirit. It was the Son that became a servant. It was the Son that became obedient unto the Father's will and died on the cross. But it was the Father that has highly exalted him and given him the name, that, uh, the name above every name. So do you see a distribution of responsibilities? Okay, let's go on to the next one. And this, this is a limited list. This doesn't cover every one of these notions or roles. It is Jesus that suffered for our sins. 
It is Jesus that suffered for sins. It wasn't the Holy Spirit. But it pleased the Father to bruise him and put him to grief, according to Isaiah 53. Difference in responsibilities and roles. Okay? It is Jesus, not the Father or the Spirit, that has redeemed us back to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Again, we're just kind of tiptoeing and letting, letting each one of these notions settle upon us, each one of these truths. Jesus is our Redeemer. We have never called the Holy Spirit our Redeemer. But we would say God has redeemed us because it's the Trinity. But if we were to come down and technically look at ground level, Jesus was born of a virgin, the son. He took upon us, took upon him our sins. He was cursed and smitten of God, smitten of God and afflicted, smitten of God and afflicted. But he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see the Trinity involved in our redemption. Jesus is the healer, but God anointed Jesus to heal with the Holy Ghost and power. <laughs> so who's the healer? Jesus. Who's the anointer? God. Who's the anointing? The Holy Spirit. All right, next one. Jesus gave us five ministry gifts. And when he, when he ascended on high, did the Holy Spirit ascend on high? No. Did the Father ascend on high? No. Jesus ascended on high out of hell. Who is he that ascended but first descended into the lowest parts of the earth? When he ascended, he gave gifts unto men. He gave us uh, apostles, some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Jesus gave us five ministry gifts, but God gave us seven grace gifts. That's in Romans 12. Jesus didn't give us seven grace gifts. God the Father did. God didn't give us five ministry gifts. Jesus did. And then the Holy Spirit gives us nine spiritual gifts. And Jesus didn't give us nine spiritual gifts. They're called the gifts of the Holy Spirit, or technically the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. God the Father didn't give us nine gifts of the Spirit. The Holy Ghost did. So we're seeing a difference in roles in the affairs of mankind. Are you with me so far? Find anything controversial? Maybe something new, something to stretch your brain. But I'm telling you, just as soon as I teach this, somebody could get a hold of this and just want to label us some kind of weird cult. Because we're looking at the scriptures. I was talking to somebody. I said, nobody teaches on the Trinity. Because I can't think of the last time I've ever, I, I would say probably never in my entire life have I had a bogged down sermon series taught to me on the Trinity. Not to diminish anybody that ever taught me. I think I learned my Trinitarian doctrine from Baptist hymns, which is it should be. We teach and admonish in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know, worship should be more about the ooh, ooh, I'm so blessed, ooh, ooh, I'm so blessed, ooh, ooh, I have no other doctrine, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are supposed to teach doctrine. And so, but I was telling somebody, I just, you don't hear any teaching on this. And they said, and this is why. It can be controversial because it's such a mystery and preachers like to claim they know it all. You only preach with confidence when you, 
or confident. And I feel like I'm still tiptoeing around a landmine field and waiting for the little thing to go click. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right, let's advance. Jesus baptizes us into the Holy Spirit, John 3, 11. But the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. But it is God the Father that sent the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I love it. This is so, this is, to me, this is so fun. You just dig at all these little scriptures and you have all these pieces and now you got to do something with it. We are members of the body of Christ. We're not members of the Holy Spirit. We're not members of the Father. We are members of the body of Christ, but it is God the Father who has set us in that body where it pleased him. Amen. Jesus sends us and commissions us to go. That's the Great Commission. Even as he was sent by his Father. He said, even as my Father has sent me, so I send I you, receive ye the Holy Ghost. So even right there, you have the Trinity in John 21. Even as my Father hath sent me, so send I you, receive ye the Holy Ghost. <laughs> I have no idea how you could possibly be a oneness person, believing in only oneness, I, no Trinity. When you can't turn three scriptures without bumping into something that at least should say, have you considered this? <laughs> have, you, have you considered that, that there's something more than just oneness? Oneness Pentecostalism or oneness anti-Trinitarianism. Jesus will return in judgment to restore the kingdom when the Father sends him. Now, the, the, I will admit, I think the most controversial thing I said last week, which I'm still nervous about, is Jesus said himself, of that day and hour no man knows, no, not the angels, not even the Son, but the Father only. So if there's one fact that is kept back from the Lord Jesus, does that make him not omniscient? That omniscient means knowing everything. Now, I still say he's omniscient because he's God, but Jesus Christ himself said, I don't know the answer to that question. Now, that makes me a little nervous. I have no explanation. I have no interpretation. But if you know your Bible... You know that no man knows the day, nor the hour, nor not the angels, not even the Son, but the Father only. But God is omniscient. He knows all things. Jesus knows all things, but the one day. That Jesus said that my Father has put in his own power. All right, just throwing this stuff out there. You can disagree. You don't have to like it. You can be unhappy, but it is what it is. <laughs> because if there's things the Father's put in his power, then there's things he's not put in the Son's power. And that gets into what's called subordinationism, which some folks consider a heresy, which we will cover in the fifth chapter or the fifth lesson. All right, so whew, I'm exhausted now. Just tiptoeing is hard stuff. <laughs> Jesus will return in judgment to restore the kingdom when the Father sends him. He doesn't know when that's going to happen because Jesus said, I've, I've hidden nothing from you. And when I send you the Holy Spirit, he'll receive of me and give it to you. If the Lord Jesus knew, he'd tell us. The problem is if he told us, we wouldn't do anything until the last minute. If we knew 
Now this gets into what's called economic subordinationism, which is it is subordinate or Jesus is subordinate to the Father for the time being for the purpose at hand. That's an economy for the purpose at hand for the time being for a limited amount. That it's best for mankind that we don't know the coming of the Lord. Therefore, we have the doctrine of imminence, which means imminence means it could happen any moment, any time without our understanding or expectation. Therefore, we must always be ready. Because if the Lord Jesus said, I will not at this time restore the kingdom, it will not happen for 2,100 years, there would be a party in Jerusalem and the saints would have gone to hell. But as it was, they were watchful because no man knew the day nor the hour and the Lord could come at any moment and it just really helps lazy carnal people walk fearfully before their God. But then again, if it is a trinity and it is, and the Father says, I'm going to withhold this from you. Then the Son says, I agree. And the Holy Spirit says, and I agree, because we're one. Co-equal, co-eternal, unity in plurality. It's a mystery. <laughs> Bonus Trinity scripture. And then we're going to conclude because I'm tired and I'm exhausted. And this is hard on my heart. <laughs> Hebrews 9. This is maybe why nobody teaches along. And they just say, God, the Father, three in one, blessed Trinity. But I will point out to the angels, there's a reason the angels said, holy, holy, holy. Flying around the throne. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah chapter six. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Because <laughs> they could see that they see the Trinity at the throne. Amen. Hebrews 6, 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Apparently we are so messed up, we need a trinity to redeem us. Sin is so egregious, so wicked, so condemning, so damning, so worthy of eternal damnation. The trinity was involved in our sanctification, redemption, salvation, and praise God. I don't care how much help I need, just bring it. Amen. May God help us to know him in all of his fullness. Because we simply scratch the surface on planet Earth. We yet know in part. And that's all. Amen.